There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Every real estate office has some framed five diamond... <laughs> President's Award thing by the desk. Every hotel check-in has some gold circle service thing. Every car salesman's a platinum jubilee winner. And it's all a big jerk-off. It's, it's, it is. The hotel sucks. The real estate person is stupid. And the only thing the car salesman is good at is ripping you off. And why? Because awards don't mean a goddamn thing. The Stream Police Podcast is brought to you by OverdueReview.com. Want something more in-depth than a sarcastic, pretentious, 140-character review of your favorite movie? Read long-form reviews of movies, TV, and music from the distant and recent past at OverdueReview.com. Hello again, friends. Whatever longitude and latitude you may be at right now and whatever time of day it is, wherever you're listening to this show, thank you very much for taking the time to tune in to the Stream Police podcast where we try to get you on the right track as far as what's streaming out there in the vast media wasteland. we got movies, we got TV, we got music, which our music editor, Andy Sedlak, will be talking about coming up in a little bit. But I'm the movie and TV guy. I'm Clint Davis uh, from OverdueReview.com if you want to uh, read some of our longer writings go on to the website there and check them out or just keep listening to the show here subscribe it pass it along to your friends and uh, go on to itunes and give us a nice glowing five-star review please it is very much appreciated uh once again thank you guys very much for tuning into the show here um i'm gonna get things started as i always do i'm sitting in my closet at home i've got no room to move my elbows it is i have been told this is a fire hazard but i'm going to continue to light up my stogie of the week because it is my right as an American to do so. All right, what do I have this week? I've got a quorum that I'm going to be smoking. Let's go ahead and give it a spark. All right. Quorum with a Q. Nothing to write home to mom about if I'm giving this one a review. Frankly, not that interesting a smoke, really. But it is wrapped well. I've never had one of these really fall apart on me at the end. I mean, you can smoke it all the way through and not get a bunch of tobacco in your teeth. And it tastes fine. It tastes fine. Best plus about these quorums, though, they're cheap. So if you want cheap stogies, 
Quorum's a good one to go to, and the, the wrapping doesn't look too bad, so it doesn't look like you're really smoking a real cheap. It's not like you're smoking a Dutch Master or something like that is what I'm saying. All right, so uh, welcome into the program. Glad to have you guys along with me today on the Stream Police. Uh, let's go ahead and get right into it. A little bit later on in the show, I'm going to be talking about movies. I asked this a couple of weeks ago on our last episode. Movies that are beloved, beloved classics, favorites that you never thought were very good. And I got some very good responses um, to this question, so I will be talking about that later. But I'll be talking about the Emmys in a few minutes as well, and of course giving you streaming TV recommendations. But let's start out right now talking about fall TV, because last week I gave you a preview of 10 series that were starting new this fall uh, that I felt like were going to be interesting to watch, and ones that I was going to be tuning into. So far I've seen two of the 10, some of them have not premiered yet, the other ones I just have not been able to sit down and watch them yet, haven't had the time. Uh, but the, uh, of the 10 I mentioned last week, I have watched two, and I'll give you quick takes on them right now. Let's start with The Bastard Executioner on FX. This show, uh, my take in the first three episodes I've watched so far, it's a straightforward drama set in the Middle Ages, if you have been wanting to watch it or wondering what this show's about. Um, it, it's got, like, lots of sage dialogue. That's one thing I notice every time I'm watching it. Kurt Sutter, the guy who wrote Sons of Anarchy, created this show quickly after wrapping Sons of Anarchy, and I guess he immersed himself in all these books he could find about real-life executioners from back in that time period in England and, uh, you know, the struggles they went through, the methods they used, and, and just the lives of these guys. So he got really deep into this stuff. And he's the kind of guy that I feel like um, he he's – I mean, he's got some wisdom that came to him the hard way, I will say. He has lived it. He did not learn his philosophies in a classroom in a book. Um, he learned them from living them. So uh, that, that's coming out in this show. There's lots of sage dialogue and lots of commentaries in this show about secret lives and people's dual nature. That's really the, the – the thesis of this show. The lead character, I feel like, is interesting, the executioner, in that he's a thoughtful and seriously skillful swordsman, really, but he's masquerading as this simple executioner, just good with an axe, cutting people's heads off and torturing people, in order to conduct an interview uh, or an undercover investigation, I should say, and interviews and all kinds of things that he can do into the noblemen that were behind the slaughter of his village. Uh, they killed his family. They killed the families of his uh, of his friends and the fellow warriors that he was out with at the time. So all these men are trying to find out what exactly happened, who is responsible, who's all responsible. So he's undercover as this executioner, um, and the setup for it was really well done, I felt like, in the first episode as far as how he started this masquerade. Um, there's lots of blood in this show. And lots of passionless sex. Like, they have sex a lot, but it's just passionless. No one's really—it's not like—it's it's sex about power, really, is what it's all about. And it, it usually always is, let's be honest, on television. Um, the accents are a bit much for me sometimes when I watch this. The other things I don't really like about The Bastard Executioner are I don't really dig the theme song. It has not moved me. It hasn't gotten me into the show. Um, and I find it hard to keep up with the sheer number of characters that are introduced because their names are rarely spoken and the accents are so that it's hard to understand. you got to watch a show with subtitles on, I feel like, to really get everything they're saying. Um, but it's a, lot to, it's a lot to take in. It's an ambitious show. Tons of characters, as I said. And, uh, I mean, it's set in a real period of human history in a real area, uh, but with fictional characters. So it's just a lot to take in with The Bastard Executioner. It is an epic undertaking, uh, I'm going to say, for the first few episodes. And I hope that really we're going to start now just boiling down, staying with the characters we already know, and, and getting down to what this thing is really 
about. But um, I have enjoyed it so far. I'll keep watching it. Uh, I like the writing. I like the intrigue. But the best revelation of The Bastard Executioner is an actress named Flora Spencer Longhurst. I'd never heard of her before. She's this beautiful young British actress who plays this wise baroness, and she's the lead female in the show. Her performances keep sucking me in every week, and I, I just I think this character has the potential to be like the breakout character of of this series, The Bastard Executioner. So that one is on FX currently um, on Tuesday nights at 10 o'clock. Uh, another show that uh, I mentioned in my 10 last week that are new this fall that I wanted to watch, Scream Queens on Fox. I got to tell you, I'm loving what I've seen from Scream Queens so far. The sorority girl attitudes in the show can be a little bit grating after an hour of like nonstop rudeness and bitchiness. But, of course, that's by design. But it does get on your nerves after a little while. Emma Roberts, who did great work in American Horror Story and now is the star of Scream Queens, she's just this alpha bitch sorority house leader who uh, doesn't even bother to get to know the names of the like uh, the girls that are sucking up to her all the time. She just names them after her, um, and it's just it's really funny. She's really funny in this role. Her and Jamie Lee Curtis, who plays the dean of the of the college that the sorority's at, are awesome in their opposition of each other. And Curtis's dean is not like the crusty old dean, quote-unquote, to borrow a line from uh, The Simpsons. Um, she's like total, actually the opposite of that, but she just does not like the sorority because of all the things they stand for, and I have a feeling that it's going to be something deeper when we actually get into uh, what happened uh, 20 years ago at this sorority, which is the basis of where this show started out. Uh, this, Scream Queens is like Mean Girls. But the plastics are being killed one by one every week in brutal ways. So it's it's fantastic in that way as well. In the premiere episode alone, in the first hour of the first episode, a woman's face was burned off in a deep fryer while she was alive, and another's head was chopped up by a riding mower. The girls were being hazed, the new sorority rushes, and they were this hazing ritual they did, they buried them up to their necks in the dirt um, out in the front lawn of the sorority house. And the girls had to sleep there overnight with their heads sticking out of the dirt. And somebody, of course, this masked killer dressed up as a, a red devil, um, like the guy from the canned chicken uh, sandwich spread stuff. Never mind. Uh, <laughs> drives over in a riding mower and cuts one of the girls' heads off with the mower. And you just see the blood spray out where the grass usually comes out. I mean, it was, it was awesome. Great stuff. Um Scream Queens is not taking prisoners at all so far, and I hope it stays that way. It's 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 pretty delicious show uh, in the just the first episode that I saw. Shows that came back. Uh, I'm going to give you quick uh, recaps, real quick, of three shows that came back this fall that I was looking forward to, and what I thought about the season premieres. First off, How to Get Away with Murder. All right, the second season premiere. I'm going to say was outstanding. I thought it was great. It carried over the things that we loved about season one, and I loved pretty much everything about How to Get Away with Murder season one. That was one of my favorite show first seasons of a show. I just felt like it was so fully realized, and it just knew exactly what it wanted to be, and it was so confident. Um, and the acting was just awesome. Viola Davis, perfect in her role. The show, uh, the, the second season had at least three moments where you're gasping, as we should be when you're watching this show. That is one of the things about a Shonda Rhimes TV show. She is the uh, producer that was behind um, uh, Scandal and, and did Grey's Anatomy and stuff as well. So uh, she's just she's known for this kind of of campy stuff. Um, there's plenty of sex, none between males and females. There's some male male sex, some female female sex. It's all just you know very racy stuff. And the outrageous things that happen in the show, I feel like, do not come out of left field. Like when a character on How to Get Away with Murder does something terrible. 
which happens to pretty much every character in the show, we feel like it was a natural progression to that point. Like we can we can go back and and figure out, okay, well, this is where it started, and I understand why he or she did this at the end of the day, even though it's awful and it's horrible. It's the worst thing I've ever seen him do, but it makes sense. And that is a sign of good writing, good character development, which is one of the strengths. I feel like of How to Get Away with Murder, there are a couple of characters that are very cardboard, one-dimensional. But uh, for the most part, the, the really good ones that keep you coming back are the, just the great characters. This show is a great examination of how a powerful person with a shaky moral compass, as Viola Davis's character Annalise Keating is, can attract sycophants. That will become bad people in the name of devotion to that person. I just hope that we get deeper in this season into Bonnie and Frank's backgrounds um, on how to get away with, with murder because they are two of my favorite characters on the show. And I feel like we just have not really gotten into what, why they are the way they are, how they came to know her, and how they came to work for Annalise. It's just uh, how to get away with murder I could, couldn't recommend more. Season one is streaming now on Netflix. So you can run through season one. You can go on to ABC.com, watch the Season 2 premiere, and you'll be caught up just like that. It won't take you very long. Um, Gotham, Season 2 premiere, aired since the last time we spoke. The Season 2 premiere of Gotham, I wasn't so high on it. It was all setup and no action. It wasn't a bad episode because we did move all the storylines forward, but it just had nothing really going on. We didn't get any real police work. And I'm hoping that the show does get back to what made its first season so fun to watch. It went away from this at the end of the first season, but in the the thick of the first season, it was great. The show was like a partner detective work program in the classic sense and a police procedural, but it had insane comic book villains um, who were doing each crime. And it was just that was always fun to watch that partnership between Bullock and uh, and Detective Gordon. And I hope we get back to that now on Gotham season two, or I don't know, you know, where they're really going to go after, you know, at this point. Um, another show that came back that I've, I've been watching, you know, for, uh, for years now, Modern Family. Season premiere, nothing new happened. Nothing new going on on Modern Family. It's the same old, same old. Uh, but there was one of the creepiest uses of a fat suit that I've seen in a long time. Just this fat suit. This guy wore a fat suit in the episode just out of nowhere. And it, like, literally jarred me. I mean, it was just kind of eerie, frightening, creepy. Uh, fat suit in uh, Modern Family, so uh, yeah, that is uh, that was the biggest development on season season. What is this season six, season seven? I don't even know how long the show's been on, but you know, same old, same old. It's uh, it's you know consistent in its how it gets its laughs and the characters. You know them, you love them, but uh, really nothing going to surprise you in uh, Modern Family. So there's my take on some of the new and returning shows for this fall TV season. Looking forward to the other ones that I mentioned last week as more premieres are rolling out here in the next uh, couple of weeks till the next time we talk. All right, let's go to uh, TV's biggest night, as they say. The Emmy Awards 2015 aired since the last time we spoke, and there were few, if any, surprises, I would say. I, I pretty much saw every award coming. If you follow me on Twitter, at Mr. Clint Davis, um, I was tweeting, I was, you know, live tweeting during the show and just kind of giving predictions and my thoughts on what was happening. And, you know, it was just really pretty much by the books, which isn't a bad thing. I mean, Game of Thrones won for best drama. Um, that Everyone saw that coming a mile away with the rule changes to voting and how much everyone loves that show. Uh, Veep won Best Comedy Series, as it did again last year, and it 
you know, I, I pretty much thought that it would, even though I do feel like Louie should have been the show that won Best Comedy. It's an absolute shame that that show has not won Best Comedy ever because it is the most arresting, surprising, and artistic comedic show. And I would say the 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 most experimental comedic show that I have seen on TV, I mean, maybe ever. It is just it is just an experimentation week after week and, and so consistently great. Uh, so, but Veep, you know, is, is a great show. I talked, I said great things about Veep a couple episodes ago on the Stream Police. And Olive Kittredge, which I talked about previously on this show as well, at great detail, it won uh, all of the miniseries, limited series awards. So few surprises. I was glad to see John Hamm from Mad Men finally get an Emmy. He, God, I mean, goddamn, the guy deserved it after seven seasons of playing one character about as well as you could ever play one character. He hit every single note. That is, you know, he he had range for days on that show, and he was endlessly watchable and just carried Mad Men through. Um, even though there were, I mean, it was one of the best casts ever. It wasn't all John Hamm, but I mean, he did a great job as the lead and was one of the most memorable leads in recent TV history. So Ham definitely deserved his Emmy Award after all these years. It's just a shame it took so long for him to get it. And Viola Davis definitely deserved Best Lead Actress for How to Get Away with Murder. I was glad to see her win that. She did awesome work in that show and really brought a lot of weight to what could have been a silly, silly program that just felt like a soap opera, but she brings a lot of weight to it. Speaking of the Emmys, though, uh, as with any award show, it's always great to second-guess If you're a fan of television and maybe you watch the Emmys and you feel like this is the be-all, end-all, this decides what is a great show. And the Emmys do mean a lot as far as network prestige. um, You know, the ratings usually spike when a show wins Emmys. Um, At least they usually go up a little bit. And networks are more apt to keep shows on, even if ratings are a little bit low, if they are Emmy winners. That has traditionally been the case anyways. But the Emmys... I would say more than almost any other award show, the, Gra- I, the Grammys is probably the worst, and I think Sedlak would agree with me on this because it's just too hard to compare music across genres. You cannot do it. Um, and there are too many things to take into account when you're comparing great music against other great music. But with television shows, there's as many nuances in TV shows as there are in records, I feel like. And comparing these shows is almost unfair. Let's second-guess the Emmys for a minute. Let's Before you start to think, well, the Emmys are what it's all about, I'm going to give you three shows and actors from the Emmys uh, over the years that show you the Emmys, the voting committee and everything, have traditionally been full of shit and haven't known what they are talking about. Number one, this is Exhibit A. This is the one that I would take before the Supreme Court if I was saying that the Emmys are not something to take too seriously. The Wire from HBO. In its history, five seasons on HBO, one of the great shows in television history. Ask anybody who's watched it, and they'll tell you, if not the greatest, one of the greatest shows ever. Zero wins in its five-season run, and two, yes, I said two, two nominations for The Wire. Two episodes of this series were ever nominated for Best Writing for a Drama. That's it. That's the only thing it was ever nominated for, Best Writing. And it was two episodes. One of the ones that was nominated, is arguably the greatest episode of the series and one of the best hours of TV that I have ever seen, the third season's middle ground. It got nominated for Best Writing. Didn't win, though. And the other is the series finale, which the series finale was fine. It's like you have to nominate the series finale, though. It just always happens of a great series. Well, we'll get that. we'll get it on the series finale. The series finale was not one of the best shows. There were million, millions of, not millions, but many hours of that show that could have been nominated for Emmys and should have won over other shows that were up and did win. Um, The TV Academy, 
once nominated four episodes of The Sopranos from a single season in this category. And, and The Wire, to me, had more than its fair share of amazing episodes. And so did The Sopranos, obviously. But four seasons, four episodes from one season of The Sopranos were nominated for best writing in a drama series in one year against each other. Four of the five nominees were Sopranos episodes. So that's what I'm saying. Like, just in a comparison, four in one category in one year for one show. Meanwhile, The Wire, over five seasons, two nominations total. The entirety of season four of The Wire was as good and meaningful as TV has ever been. And the fact that it was never nominated for Outstanding Drama Series is an absolute joke. That is one of the biggest jokes in Emmy's history. It was never even nominated for Best Dramatic Series. Just think about that for a minute. The reason that's frequently been cited, though, about why... The Wire was never nominated for a lot of Emmys is because the show didn't have any well-connected or high-powered producers attached during its run. Isn't that a sad-ass reason for a show not to get nominated for awards? It's all political, friends. And I think it's more likely, I feel like the reason why the show didn't get all the acclaim that it deserved from the Emmys is that it didn't set itself up for single-episode greatness, but really was more of a full-season event was what it required. You couldn't watch one episode of The Wire and understand its greatness, as you could with The Sopranos. You watch the college episode, um, or you watch the university episode, or you watch uh, Mad Men, um, you know, The Phantom, or uh, The Wheel, or any of those episodes. You could watch a single episode and understand why those shows were great. You couldn't really do that with The Wire, other than, I would say, Middle Ground. That was probably the one you could do that with. The Wire is the number one reason, though, for me not to put too much stock into Emmy tallies. Another one I'm going to throw at you here, an actor, Michael C. Hall. Michael C. Hall in his career, zero wins at the Emmys, seven nominations. One of the most consistent, pure TV actors ever. Michael C. Hall anchored an unlikely premium cable hit for eight seasons in Dexter, if you ever saw that show. I mean, how could this show become a successful long-running show. I mean, it's about a serial killer. He's the main character. He's the guy you're supposed to empathize with, a sociopath with no emotions. Um, and, and, I mean, Michael C. Hall just slayed it every year, and that was why the show was successful. His work on that show was magnetic and diabolical, but it was his five seasons that he spent on Six Feet Under that, for me, rank as one of the best single-character performances ever on TV. As David Fisher in that show, he played one of the first gay characters to be rounded to three dimensions and accumulate a ton of depth over the the series, uh, five-season run of that series. He was nominated only once for that performance in Six Feet Under, which is also a shame. But he racked up six for his time on Dexter. You pick out any single episode of Six Feet Under, I'm telling you right now, with a major storyline for David, and you'll see an Emmy-worthy performance from Michael C. Hall. So he's reason number two, I say, not to put too much stock into the Emmy Awards. Reason number three, and this is the final one I'll give you, Steve Carell. Zero wins for Steve Carell over nine nominations. Carell has been nominated now for 17 major awards, including an Oscar, seven Golden Globes, and nine Emmys in his career. Think about that. An Oscar, seven Golden Globes, and nine Emmy nominations for Steve Carell. Most of those nominations come from his work as an actor and producer on The Office. His performance on The Office, to me, is just, it was the lifeblood of the series, And his departure alone is often cited as the show's jump the shark moment. That alone, to me, proves his greatness. This guy was on this show that had a big ensemble cast, but when he left, that's when everybody says, yeah, that's that's when it went down the toilet, man. When Michael left the show, when Steve Carell was gone, uh, I lost all interest. 
If that doesn't prove your greatness as an actor, I don't know what does. Every year from 2006 to 2011, Steve Carell was nominated for Best Lead Actor in a Comedy Series. And listen to the guys he lost to. Tony Shalhoub from Monk. Ricky Gervais in Extras. All right, good pick there. Alec Baldwin two times. Also a good pick. He was great on 30 Rock. And Jim freaking Parsons from The Big Bang Theory, who won it two times. Carell couldn't win an Emmy to save his life. Um, And that, to me, is reason number three. And I'll give you even a bonus reason number four, Amy Poehler. And that's all I'm going to say about that. All right, so enough getting worked up about second-guessing the Emmys. I'm just saying, with any award show, do not put too much stock into it. The one that I would say over the years has been consistently good at picking out great winners is the Cannes Film Festival's Palm Door. Look up the winners of the Cannes Film Festival Palm Door Award, and you will see, if you like international film, because most of the ones that win have been formed, but there have been some great American movies to win that. Just one, for instance, Pulp Fiction won it back in the day. Um, it, It is one of those awards, though, that you can tell a lot of thought is put into it, and the ones that win are the ones that truly deserve it and and have traditionally been movies that I would call among, if not the best movie of the year, which is more than you can say for the best picture winner year in, year out at the Oscars. Um, But even a blind squirrel finds a nut sometimes. All right, I'm going to go ahead and take my break, pass things over to my partner in crime, Andy Sedlak, our music editor at OverdueReview.com. When I come back, I've got a streaming TV recommendation for you that is right now on Amazon Prime Instant Video. And I'm going to run down some of the beloved movies that uh, I was told you guys never liked and some of the reasons behind those. You don't want to miss that. So take it away, Mr. Sedlak. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, what's up, guys? Good to be speaking with you again. What do you think of um, when you hear the word trendy? Is it a bad word? I'm sure there are certain things that come to mind. I just read something the other day about how in the fashion industry, denim is hot right now. It is trendy. So is the color tangerine. In the automotive world, high-performance sports cars are all the rage on account of low gas prices. They have the reputation right now. They're, they're deemed trendy in the automotive world. Um, in pop music, the saxophone has become trendy. It has made a comeback of sorts. I realized this recently when I saw a Hershey's commercial 
uh, the one with the uh, the Fifth Harmony song. Worth it. The trend isn't like a big, blustery sax solo. It's like these little buzzy sax parts. It's sax sampling that's become the trend. Sounds familiar, right? That was Ariana Grande's problem. I'll throw another one at you. Jason Dorillo's Talk Dirty. You talk dirty to me. You talk dirty to me. It's legit the same sax part. I could do this all day. Have you heard uh, uh, Red Foo's new thing? So, I would assert that maybe it's not the saxophone that's making a comeback, but it's like that one lick you know, that's showing up in pop songs in slightly different variations. Again, it's funny how trends work. It's funny how we, um, we, we use pieces of things and pieces of things become a trend. It's not the playing of Leroy Moore or Mark uh, Rivera that's finding its way into pop, but it's these, and it's it's kind of a lame word, but copycat sax riffs. And I'm not coming down on pop. Uh, it just it just is what it is. Um, copy and paste almost. And this goes back for years. Check out J-Lo's uh, Get Right from 2005. Again, a very similar sax riff. Then there's Macklemore's Thrift Shop. Oh! I, I guess that one's a little different. But when pop music or any art gets repetitive and starts to really get away with this copy and paste nature, that's when it gets in trouble because I think people deserve more, and I think they'll they'll realize that, you know. Um We'll see. As far as when, we'll see. The the saxophone, by the way, patented in 1846 by its Belgian inventor, Adolf Sax. Fun fact, Mr. Sax and I share a birthday. But the instrument became signature to jazz music here in the United States. Then in big band and swing, it formed the bedrock of rock and roll, uh, often serving as the lead instrument before the electric guitar moved out front and rose to prominence. To me, the saxophone um, and Clarence Clemens of the E Street Band will always be synonymous.
I interviewed Clemens for my college radio show at one point, and it was one of the high points of my life. He passed away in 2011. Um, But I wonder what Clemens would say about the resurgence of the sax in pop music these days. He may not be against it. Um, Clemens was a pretty open-minded guy, and he himself turned up in Lady Gaga's uh, Edge of Glory. Gaga was on to something. Now that I listen back to that. Let's have some more of that, please. Less copy and paste. My apologies if I sound like your dad, but I have been listening to a lot of new music lately, and, and I like it all. I really like Keith Richards' new solo album. That's called Cross-Eyed Heart. And I tweeted this uh, as I was making my way through it uh, the first time, but it sounds like the whole record could have been cut in like one night over a couple bottles of rum, it has that feel. Just that feel. He's got a crack band called the Expensive Winos. Google them. I think you'll you'll be impressed uh, by their credentials. And they just sound like they're having a ball. And Keith's winking throughout the whole record is like it's it, it just vintage Richards. The thrill of Keith Richards is in the way that he laughs at the devil. And at the Angels, really. There's also a Netflix documentary that accompanied uh, that record. The documentary itself is called Under the Influence. I have not seen it, so I can't speak to it. Um, but I have I have seen certain clips. One of those clips um, I've actually thought about a lot lately. What I really love about reggae, it's also natural you know there's none of this forced stuff and at that time i was getting really sick of rock music rock and roll i never get sick of but uh, there was less and less of that and more rock music which is actually a white man's version it turns out to be like they turn it into a march basically you know, we all rock and roll. i mean eventually uh, that's what that's their version of rock <laughs> you know like excuse me i prefer the role and i really don't have anything to add after that uh, I don't have anything to add or subtract from that statement. Just something that I agree with wholeheartedly. Uh, and I'm, I'm totally looking forward to the documentary. If you have seen it, um, I don't mind spoilers. Uh, so go ahead and, and shoot me an email. It's sedlakjournal at gmail.com. S-E-D-L-A-K, the word journal, all switched together at gmail.com. Uh, there's a track on Keith's record called Nothing On Me. Truly love it. Truly it's been in my head for about a week. The first single you may have heard, uh, it's called Trouble. And it's it's a fair representation of what you'll be getting in the rest of the record. Uh, so if Trouble works for you, I suggest you pick up the LP. Um, aside from Richard's uh, record, I've been listening to Kit Moore's new album. It's called Wild Ones. And in some ways, I've given it 
more thought than Richard's record because it's got me thinking about an untapped resource for country musicians, mainstream country musicians, that seems so obvious I can't believe that it is untapped. And that's the resource of Heartland Rock. I I can't believe that more mainstream country musicians have not tapped into the Heartland Rock uh, vein, so to speak. If anything, they seem to lean more towards 80s hair metal. And that is glossy production, songs about having fun, the upside of life, scoring with chicks, life on the road, that type of thing. But I like Kip's record. Again, it's called Wild Ones. Because he does tap into that vein. Hell, he looks like born in the USA era Bruce Springsteen on the cover of the record. And part of the beauty there is that uh, Heartland Rock was inspired by country music. So to use that now as an inspiration is sort of coming full circle. Heartland Rock was inspired by the adult forms of country music, adult country music, blue-collar-oriented country music. So it does truly feel like a fit on Kip's album. Uh, Ironically... The hit single, it's called I'm to Blame, sort of uh, feels like filler within the context of the album. Uh, Take a listen. Take your pistol. There's nothing wrong with it, uh, but it it just doesn't make much of an impact in the uh, three minutes or so. that it has, but the rest of the album is actually pretty interesting. There's a song called That Was Us, and it is money. If we got high, we got stone. If there was a fire, we got it on. If there was a backseat, we made love. I'd like to hear country radio play that, but it seems doubtful. He says both high and ass in the song. Standing there sipping on smoke in a cheap ass bottle of rum. If Zach Brown could not say ass, Kip Moore will not be able to say ass either. I believe our audience, however, can handle the words high and ass. So dig that one up. Uh, it may be your only opportunity to hear it. You may not get that opportunity on radio. Okay, here are five songs strong enough to carry you through the week. Who knows what kind of week you're going to have, but if all goes to hell, these songs might save you. The majority of them uh, are older, uh, so you could say they're overdue for recognition. The first is Rock Steady by Aretha Franklin. The second is Last Child by Aerosmith. Back, 
Then we have this DJ by Warren G. I've actually been listening to Warren G a lot lately. This song uh, was released in 1994. Then it's Out of Time by the Rolling Stones. That's an early cut from the Stones. And this is one of my all-time favorite songs. I tell people it's been stuck in my head since I was 14. Uh, it literally uh, comes across my mind every day at one point or another. So it's uh, one that has come to mean a great deal to me. It's Walking on a Thin Line by Huey Lewis in the News. All right, there you have it, folks. Best of luck to you. All right, thank you very much, Andy. Much appreciated, as always. Let me uh, sit here and smoke my stogie for a minute. Um, All right, let's get right back to uh, talking about TV and movies here on the Stream Police Podcast. Once again, I'm Clint Davis, the uh, movies and TV editor at OverdueReview.com. And I've got a streaming recommendation for you here. That is one of the things we love to do every uh, episode here on the Stream Police, a show that is right now streaming from one of the big subscription services that you can watch and should watch, Amazon Prime Instant Video. If you have a subscription to this, go ahead right now and queue up Sex and the City because the entire series is now available for Amazon subscribers. Sex and the City was one of those shows that I really I really fell in love with, and I liked it a lot when I was first getting into TV seriously. Um, and I was like in my teens, and we got HBO, and it was in the middle of its run, and I started watching it. And I just thought, thought it was so funny. Like, I was a teenager, so one of the reasons why, and I'm not ashamed to admit this, I started watching Sex and the City was because it had a lot of nudity on it. It was renowned for just having constant sex all the time, and that was really all I had heard about it. So I wanted to watch it. I was a horny teenage boy. All right, I'll watch Sex and the City, four hot chicks, and all they're doing is uh, going around and having sex every week. But the show, of course, is much more than that, and I quickly realized that, and I really just loved the characters, and I loved the situations they were getting into, and I really liked the writing a lot. That's one of the things about Sex and the City. That, I feel like, that show kind of lived and died by the sword of great uh, cheeky writing because Sex in the City in the, f- the first few seasons, the writing is so cutesy. You know, the way the show is framed, it's this, this woman writing a blog, Sex and the, or a, news, a magazine or newspaper column, whatever, actually called Sex in the City and her exploits in New York City, uh, her sexual exploits mostly. But there's always like lessons about life, fashion, stuff like that. Um, so, I mean, it's it's viewed through this lens of, like, learning a, a lesson or, or something to take away from each encounter that you have with whatever random person, no matter how small it may seem at the time. The writing, though, was just so cute that over time it felt like, uh, I don't know, it just felt like, God, I mean, they were beating you over the head with how clever they were with the writing on this show. There's nothing like raising the subject of models among four single women to spice up an otherwise dull Tuesday night. 
And they have this distant, sexy look. That's not sex, it's starvation. That's starvation in the best restaurant. Yeah. What I want to know is, when did all the men get together and decide that they would only get it up for giraffes with big breasts? <laughs> in some cultures, heavy women with mustaches are considered beautiful. And you're looking at me while you're saying we that? We should just admit that we live in a culture that promotes impossible standards of beauty. Yeah, except men think they're possible. Yeah. I just know no matter how good I feel about myself, if I see Christy Turlington, I just want to give up. Well, I just want to tie her down and force feed her lard, but that's the difference between you and me. <laughs> Sex and the City, I'd still recommend it as a just essential 90s TV viewing uh, to go on, and essential HBO viewing. And speaking of that, Sex and the City is also right now is also on HBO Go. The whole uh, series is on there. Right now, go on to the website, OverdueReview.com, and you can see my list of the 10 best HBO shows that are not available on HBO Go. That's at the website now. Um, it can be a stroll down memory lane for some old-school HBO fans, but it's just shocking that these 10 shows, and I didn't have a hard time coming up with 10 at all. I would say all 10 of them are shows that I really like uh, that are not available right now on HBO Go, despite the fact that you are an HBO subscriber, as I am. I don't have HBO now. I have HBO Go, and I cannot watch those 10 shows, and it pisses me off. Luckily, I have a couple of them on DVD because I'm old school like that. All right, let's talk about a topic that I stole from my uh, from my partner, Andy Sedlak. He talked a few episodes ago about albums and bands that were universally acclaimed that you just, for whatever reason, didn't connect with. You didn't like them. Couldn't make the connection for whatever reason. And I wanted to do the same thing for movies, so I just straight ripped them off, and I asked you guys, what were some of the beloved movies that you never liked, for whatever reason? And I'm going to give you some of the responses now, because I think they're very good. Uh, First off, let me get to Andy's responses. He sent me an email quickly after I posed the question on our episode um, a couple weeks ago. His first one, Andy says, Gone with the Wind. He says, For as grand as it was, Vivian Lee's performance ruined the film for me. I know it was a different era, blah, 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 but in my opinion, it's always been unwatchable. Andy, I respect your opinion greatly. I know the man knows movies well. He uh, he watches a ton of movies also, and uh, we have always had great discussions about films. But I have to disagree with you about Gone with the Wind. I feel like it is a movie that really, I feel like it still has aged pretty well and is so much less romantic than a lot of people remember about it. It looks so romantic, but the movie is so cold. The characters are so cold to each other. And, I mean, it's just like Downton Abbey or something, you know, 56, actually way longer than that. It's like, uh, at this point, like 80 years old. So, Gone with the Wind. And I love Vivian Lee's performance in that movie, so i got to shoot you down, Andy. But, hey, to each his own. He takes Gone with the Wind. Another one for Andy, The Natural. He says, I love the entire cast as individuals. I love Barry Levinson, and I love Randy Newman, but I never liked the film. I saw it for the first time in high school and was pumped to sit down and watch it, but it landed with a thud. It was just way too majestic, too romantic. The Natural, that is that is certainly a romantic movie, but, man, that's a surprising one to hear uh, that he never liked The Natural. That is certainly a beloved, a lot of people would put it, when you bring up the best baseball movies, The Naturals, you usually second or third to come out of uh, someone's mouth, it seems like. Uh, and Andy loves baseball movies. I know that. I mean, he's a huge Major League and uh, a Bull Durham fan, but maybe that's that's why that's why he didn't like The Natural, because it was kind of like the anti-Bull Durham and, uh, and Major League. There wasn't much humor about baseball in The Natural. And the third one for Andy of beloved movies that he never liked, he took Avatar, 
Uh, he said, I saw it in 3D in the theaters and was unengaged for three hours. It was obviously a massive undertaking, but that doesn't automatically score points. As Kanye West says, when you try hard, that's when you die hard. Uh, <laughs> very, very well said. Reaching into a uh, for a Kanye quote to describe Avatar. I'll agree with Andy on that one. Um, saw it in theaters as well. Was impressed by the scope of it, the look of it, but uh, just felt very disconnected from it. And it just could, I had a hard time connecting with those animated characters, even though I have connected very closely with a lot of really animated characters. But just the people playing motion capped, you know, animation. I just it doesn't. It doesn't do much for me. It hasn't done much for me yet in movie history. But uh, Avatar, I'll agree with you on that one, Mr. Sedlak. Um, Pete in San Francisco also sent me some beloved movies that he never liked. He said, first off, Tootsie. I'm sure at the time it was a breakthrough film, but I watched it a few months ago, and it was more or less a, quote, meh, end quote, from Pete and San Fran. He didn't like Tootsie much. I saw it years ago. Haven't seen it in a long time, but I did like it when I saw it. I, I thought it was funny. I, I love Sidney Pollock. I think he's just. I, I think he's a great director. Um, and I, I mean, how do you not like Dustin Hoffman, dude? The guy had never missed. I, I would say that in his entire career, he as an actor never missed. He might not have always been in great movies, but he didn't hit false notes. So I don't know if I agree on Tootsie, but I'd have to go back and watch it again. Pete also takes Monty Python on the Holy Grail. Says I just don't get it. I just don't get it. I'm going to make a big disagreement on that one. I'm not going to say that I do get it, but I do love it, and it cracks me up every time I watch Monty Python and the Holy Grail. The first two times I saw it, probably, I didn't laugh that much, but man, every time since, I crack up more and more uh, at, at the Holy Grail. I would say that that's probably a divisive movie, though, Pete. Old woman! Man! Ma'am, sorry. What knight lives in that castle over there? I'm 37. What? I'm 37. I'm not old. Well, I can't just call you man. You could say Dennis. I didn't know you were called Dennis. Well, you didn't bother to find out, did you? I did say sorry about the old woman, but from behind you looked... What I object to is you automatically treat me like an inferior. Well, I am king. Oh, king, eh? Very nice. Uh, Pete also takes Vicky Cristina Barcelona as a beloved movie that he never liked. He said, a friend and I have an ongoing battle about this one. I think it's awful and is about nothing. Waste of time, Pete says about Vicky Cristina Barcelona. I am a diehard Woody Allen fan. He's one of my idols in movie uh, in Hollywood history. And uh, I will say Vicky Cristina Barcelona is, uh, I mean, it's definitely not in the vein of, of his 70s films, but... Of the of the newer films he's done, and I think he's done a lot of great ones. I'd put it up there as strong. I mean, they're they're pretty much all consistent. Magic in the Moonlight, um, uh, Blue Jasmine, which was the, probably the best of all of his new movies. Vicky, Vicky Cristina Barcelona all have like the same tone, and they have this gorgeous atmosphere. Um, but yeah, I can see how you could say it's not really about anything. It's it's really not. I mean, there's not a grand point to that movie, so it didn't do anything for Pete. Um, and finally, Pete goes with Finding Nemo. He says it's meh. Dot, dot, dot. That's all he had as a reaction to Finding Nemo, and I couldn't agree more. Totally agree on Finding Nemo. Of all the Pixar movies, it is the one that I've never understood the obsession with, and I just never liked it very much. No matter how many times I watch it, just don't dig it. I do not like Finding Nemo. Totally agree, Pete. Good list. Glenn in Delaware, Ohio sent me a couple as well on Twitter. He says, 2001 A Space Odyssey and The Usual Suspects are his picks for beloved movies that he uh, just never really connected with, never liked. He said of the usual suspects, the twist and the lineup scene were great, but the rest of the movie was not. 
Um, I'll agree with you on 2001 A Space Odyssey. I do feel like that is one of the hardest movies ever made to connect with. I mean, you can say what you want about its artistic direction. You can say what you want about um, how it predicted the future of, of machines controlling us and, and, and really the mastership of, uh, of how Kubrick handled the camera how he framed the shots. I mean, just everything about the way the movie looks, the way it was edited, the music, um, it's it's awesome in terms of that. But the movie itself, I mean, the storyline, very hard to connect with, very hard to come away from 2001 with a lot of reactions, I feel like. I, I do feel like it's one of those movies that's better watched stoned, uh, really, and on a giant screen. Usual Suspects, though, I've always liked The Usual Suspects a lot. Um, I have always been a, a big fan of that movie. It's a little bit gimmicky, but, um, yeah, that lineup scene is one of the great scenes in, in film history, and that alone, I feel like, does uh, put it up there. And the cast works so well together, but Glenn takes those two as his beloved movies that he never really liked. Jason in Cincinnati tells me all Quentin Tarantino movies are his choice for movies that are beloved that he never liked. But when I pressed Jason on this, because I loved I love Tarantino, he's the guy that really got me into movies as heavily as I am today. I celebrate the guy's entire catalog, as they say in Office Space. I asked Jason, though, but have you seen Pulp Fiction? And he had never seen Pulp Fiction. So I'm like, dude, do not make a sweeping generalization about Tarantino if you haven't seen the guy's masterpiece. I mean, don't don't say, well, I just don't like F. Scott Fitzgerald, but I never read The Great Gatsby. I read all the other books, just never read The Great Gatsby. You can't say you don't like F. Scott Fitzgerald if you haven't read that. You can't say you don't like Tarantino if you haven't seen Pulp Fiction. But I will say, if you don't like the other ones, if you don't like Reservoir Dogs, if you don't like Jackie Brown, which you hadn't seen either, then you're not going to like Pulp Fiction. But it is not like Inglorious Bastards and, and, and Kill Bill and the other ones. He, the guy's got such a, a wide palette, I feel like, um, that he's a – I just feel like Tarantino's a very hard guy to make sweeping generalizations about because he has played with so many different shades of paint over his career. But, hey, Jason takes QT as the guy that makes movies that he just doesn't, doesn't care for. Uh, a couple more responses. Eric in Westchester told me Field of Dreams was his big pick for a beloved movie that he has just never liked. And Field of Dreams, I really do not have a strong opinion on. Just really don't. But I will say the, the surprising thing about him picking that is Eric is one of the biggest sports fans and one of the biggest baseball fans I've ever met in my life. And I would have thought the guy would love Field of Dreams because it treats baseball so majestically, so romantically. Um, and, and it's such a, a father-son. He's, he's got a, a son as well. It's a a movie that's so much about fathers and sons connecting on something, and that would be baseball. For him to not like it, I was just like taken aback and stunned. But Field of Dreams, that's his, uh, his big pick there. And finally, Marie in Westchester, all the nerds out there are going to gasp, as I did when I heard this one. She told me that Empire Strikes Back is her least favorite movie in the original Star Wars trilogy. All right. Empire Strikes Back, least favorite in the original Star Wars trilogy. I thought that everyone had voted. We had gotten together and decided that it was the best of all the Star Wars movies, period. One through six, it was the greatest. But she apparently did not get the memo and did not like Empire compared to the other two Star Wars films. But she is a big Star Wars fan. Uh, She said she just... And she didn't say she didn't like Empire Strikes Back, but she said it was her least favorite of the original trilogy, which I said, I'm going to count that on my list because that is definitely a beloved movie. And saying that it's not the best of the trilogy, I think is one of those opinions that you probably would keep to yourself because everyone pretty much agrees with the opposite of what you think. 
So if you have any of those, and if you've thought of any, send them to me. I'm going to give you my list in the next episode as far as movies that everyone loves that I just do not love. Um, I, but Pete took Finding Nemo away from me. That was one of the ones that was going to be on my list, definitely. I've just never never understood it, and I'm a huge Pixar fan. Love, I, 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 Once again, I celebrate their entire catalog, but just never saw the allure of Finding Nemo. All right, that's going to do it for the Stream Police podcast for this week. I appreciate you guys uh, tuning in, and I want to thank Andy Sadlack very much for his uh, music thoughts. Go uh, over to the website, overduereview.com, for more in-depth reviews of Movies, uh, TV, and music across all eras are uh, friends. I mean, if there's a movie on Netflix that you're thinking about watching, put it into the search box on Overdue Review. We might have already touched on it and uh, can give you a take. And, uh, you know, maybe maybe we can sway you one way or another as to make that your, you know, the, the movie that you decide to spend a couple hours with on a night, which is such a precious thing to do, and it's, it's an important thing. We'll talk to you next time. Take it easy out there. The Stream Police Podcast is a production of OverdueReview.com. Since 2013, the staff at Overdue Review have written thoughtful, unpretentious opinions on hundreds of movies, TV shows, and music from every era. Overdue Review, better late. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.